welcome back to the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast. I'm Dane Cash, and we are here to talk mostly about the Elite Men's Road Race at Glasgow Superworlds. We've got some other things to talk about today, too, but it's mostly going to be rainbow talk. And I am so excited to be joined, as ever, by bike racing analyst extraordinaire, Cosmo Catalano. Cosmo, great to see you. Looking forward to our weekly conversation. Yeah, great to be here, Dan. Always a pleasure. And joining us this week, for the first time in a little while, we are, we're honored uh, that uh, Escape Collective Editor-in-Chief Kaylee Fretz is here to talk about like worlds. <laughs> I'm honored to be here. Well, that's great. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that you say that. Uh, Kaylee, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. Pleasure to be here. Uh, we have lots of thoughts about Worlds. It was a fantastic race. I, I really can't remember a Worlds that I enjoyed as much in, in recent memory. It was really, really, really entertaining. You know who can remember? Johan Verniel. He knows a lot of races he liked more than this race for some well, reason. he has his own podcast. He can talk about it over there, right? <laughs> Yeah, so I, I think there's lots to talk about here. There's a couple other things, too. We can look look ahead a little bit to the upcoming events at Glasgow World. So buckle up. It's going to be a fun show. But first, I got to tell you that everything we do here on this podcast, also everything that we do over on The Placeholders, Wheel Talk, Geek Warning, every other podcast that we sometimes do in you know July, uh, is all supported by our members here. Everything we do over at the website, escapecollective.com. It's all member-funded. So you should go become a member if you're not already. Head on over to escapecollective.com slash join and sign up to become a member if you're not already. If you already are a member and you're listening, we thank you. We are very grateful. And we appreciate that you are a part of our very cool community. If you're not, well, come come be part of our very cool community. Again, escapecollective.com slash join. We'd love to have you. All right. Elite Men's Road Race happens in August. This is a very rare occurrence because we have Super Worlds going on. It's one of the first events of the whole thing. It's weird to be watching a World's Road Race in August, but like I said, I kind of loved it. Uh, Kaylee, because you're here, because we're so honored by your presence, can you take us through you know, a 30-second rundown just to set the scene? I'm sure our listeners watched Worlds because they're pretty serious about bike racing, but just set the scene. What happened? At the race. Uh, well, and also because I wrote the report yesterday, so that's the real reason why you're throwing to me right now. That is, yes. 271.1 kilometers finishing in Glasgow with those sort of crit-like circuits. Uh, everybody knew that it was going to be chaos for the entire latter half of the race, and so we had a pretty strong breakaway make its way up the road, included riders like Matthew Dinham and Owen Duell and Kevin Verveka and a whole bunch of other interesting folks. They were somewhat doomed, but also Matthew Denham ended up in seventh. <laughs> so not entirely doomed. Pretty smart, I think, actually to get up ahead of the ahead of the the action. Hit the the circuits, I think it was what was it ten circuits? How many circuits did they do? I should actually know this. It was, it was a lot. I, it was 10, 10 circuits. Uh, and basically from, from the very, very beginning of the circuits, we saw a lot of action. It was really clear that because of the sort of narrow, uh, narrow course, lots of corners, I think it was 50 corners per lap, uh, plus lots of up and downs and, you know, descending into 90 degree corners. And it's basically a giant criterion, I think is the way that it was described in a lot of different places. Once riders were dropped, they, they kind of couldn't come back. And the same thing happened, well, at least everyone was hoping so, with riders off the front. So we saw stuff like 75K to go, 73K to go. Vanderpool goes with a group of five, you know, Wout Van Aert and Peterson and Simon Clark and those guys. A long, long, long way from the finish. Uh, that all sort of came back together. We had a bit of rain at 55 kilometers to go. Uh, Alberto Betiol, I think, had probably some of the best legs on the day if he was maybe a little bit uh, overactive. Ended up off the front for, for quite a while alone. Very, very impressive. Definitely helped out by the rain that showed up while he was off the front. And then we end up with this this sort of super group coming into the final 20, 30 kilometers. Uh, the same sort of group of, of five riders, four riders that had been off the front 
pretty much the entire day. Uh, and well, we had Vanderpol, Walt Van Art, Tadej Pogacar, Peterson. Uh, was it 23 kilometers to go? Matthew Vanderpol attacks. He comes over the top of Betiel, who they're catching right in that moment. And absolutely nobody could hang on to him. He gets a gap. He falls down. He still has a gap. He keeps going. Nobody behind him can catch him. Uh, and it turned out that the rest of that pretty star-studded, what was it, quintet at that point, were racing for the rest of the podium. So behind him, Wout van Aert lost everybody else, came in second. And it's kind of surprisingly, Tadej Pogacar out-sprinted Mess Peterson for third. And there was your podium. I felt like a bit of a dunce when I explained the um, the dynamics of this group uh, that had Pogacar in it to my fiance. I said, well, you got some really fast sprinters here. You know, Mess Peterson is really fast. So Pogacar's going to have to attack because he's, he's going to lose in a sprint. And then half an hour later, he beat Peterson in a sprint, and then I had to, I questioned my entire worldview. Uh, but it, if you're looking for sort of like something to sum up, just how hard the day was, there's your perfect yeah, little that's anecdote, a good point. right? Yep. Which is the fact that Tadej Pogacar, who is definitely not a better sprinter than Mess Peterson, beat Mess Peterson in a sprint at the end of 271.1 kilometers. So, a, a kind of a useful a useful place to to. Yeah, define the entire day, which was that it was an incredibly, incredibly difficult, uh, criterium-like, punchy, painful worlds. Yeah, it, it's sort of in that way reminiscent of Casper Asgreen beating Matthew Vanderpool in a sprint at Flanders, Matt Heyman beating Tom Bonin in a sprint at Roubaix. The latter one, like one of the wildest things that you know we've we've seen matt Heyman beating bone in a sprint so yeah i, I think it, it the, the attritional nature of this course that to me the really wacky thing about the course is that if you look at the climbs i mean none of them are that challenging they're so short all these they're very steep but none of them are that challenging they're, they're very short but over the course of yeah like you said all of those laps all of those corners over the course of the day it seemed like this was a brutal race and i mean even with like 50k to go the, the quote-unquote peloton was was just shredded to pieces it was it was incredibly classics like like I, th- I think even that that sort of double escape we saw where we had the same top contenders kind of poke clear at seventy four k and then at at forty k, uh, like I, I think having watched the junior race, a lot of teams maybe adjusted their strategy to, you know, look at the entrance to the circuits here as sort of the forest of Arenberg of this course because we saw a lot of the top teams absolutely smash as soon as they got onto the the circuits, string it out, break it up. And you, you sort of had this pattern of, of attack and regroup that you generally don't see outside of a classic. And I think that was good. I, I definitely enjoyed watching it. The attacks, the pressure put on the front by various teams. I mean, there, there was, uh, you know, when I wrote the preview, th- there was a sense in my mind that you can't completely count out the, the possibility of a bunch sprint, but I, I, it didn't seem likely. But, you know, there, there's there are teams that have brought a Jasper Phillips and uh, to this race just in case and it was pretty clear very early that's not going to happen uh, with the amount of pressure that the team I mean like like uh, we have written here on the run sheet with 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 the Denmarks and the Belgiums kind of pushing really hard at the front there there was just it was not going to happen and a lot of those sprinters are dropped super early uh, making it very clear that this was going to be a, a, a very small group fighting for the win I mean there were sections of the course where literally you could only get maybe two riders wide through a corner right and so actually some of them maybe even one so all it would take was the person on the front to be just doing tempo and the entire latter half of the of the peloton is doing a series of sprints after after every single corner for 50 corners every single lap for 10 laps like there was just absolutely no way that that anybody in the latter half of the peloton when they entered the circuits was going to be there for more than like a lap or two because it didn't matter how strong they were it was going to be absolutely impossible there, I, I saw a tweet i think it was from greg henderson uh folks who've been watching the sport for a long time will we'll remember that name uh and he I, I'm, I'm gonna paraphrase here because i don't have the, the tweet in front of me basically basically it was a similar event i think it was actually in the u.s and he came in third with an average power of 300 watts and edvald bosenhagen dropped out with an average power of 370 watts. 
And that's basically his thing was, well, that's how you race criteriums. Like if you know how to race crits, if you know where to be, if you know how to do the corners, if you know how to, how to race these things and, and, and how to succeed in them, then it's a massive, massive advantage, which kind of brings me to the, the topic that we do need to discuss, I think, which is the fact that a lot of folks ahead of this race said the the course was, was terrible, um, for various different reasons. They either said it was dangerous or they said it just like, wasn't proper or I, I didn't even, like a lot of them weren't even actually really explaining why they didn't like it it, it just sort of it, it isn't much it isn't like a lot of the world's courses we've seen in the past um lo and behold most of the teams that had people complaining about the course didn't do particularly well uh the french for example uh, were basically nowhere to be seen <laughs> and sort of rode themselves right out of the race a couple different times uh it was a, it was a very unique circuit and I think that the riders that embraced that and that kind of loved it were the ones that ended up doing a lot better and also the ones that, uh, well, that, that generally just knew where to be, which was at the front. Yeah, this is that's right in line with what Palace said in his post-race interview was that the, the battle for position was super hot, but it was a thousand percent worth it. Like if you could get where you needed to be, the payoff was there and it was there more and more as the race went on. And I think maybe I'm jumping ahead on the run sheet a little bit, but having Pogacar in a bright green kit and relatively thin on teammates made a very cool, as you're watching the race indicator, um, you know, how much work he did just staying close to the front. Like you would see him sort of pop out at the back of the train for a second or two, uh, kind of a front on camera shot. And they would come up a hill and go around a corner and he'd be, you know, sixth or seventh wheel. And you would, you would almost never see him down further down than that. And that takes a lot of work as it's happening, but you you end you know it's a three hundred watt effort keeping near the front instead of a three hundred fifty watt effort trying to catch back on, um, and it, it I just I really love the visuals we got to kind of to have that indicator and like seeing the group we saw at the end of the, like these are the strongest riders in the world there were clearly four of them you know up there above everyone else maybe five depending on how you count and it was just incredible to see that that little green dot showing you all the work that went into making him in that selection is it worth kind of explaining a little bit why this is the case like the physics of it i mean the the simplest version is probably just anybody who's ever been in traffic in their car is basically the same thing right like if you're in traffic and you can kind of see a ways ahead of you you can see the sort of accordion effect you can see the fact that okay well maybe up there they're going quite fast but because somebody tapped their brakes now, five minutes back here, I've just had to slam on my brakes and then accelerate and slam on my brakes and accelerate and slam on my brakes and accelerate. And that is essentially what the Peloton is doing every single corner around this entire entire course. And so, yeah, maybe the front 10 riders are just consistently sitting at 350, 400 watts. The back 10 riders are going from zero to 1,000 watts, from zero to 1,000 watts, zero to 1,000 watts over and over and over again. And so that's why you, even these... Even the riders of this caliber cannot do that for, you know, a hundred k, which is basically what they were being asked to do at the end of this race. And 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 like, it, so you needed to be strong, but you also needed to be smart. And we did see, as you were kind of intimating there, Cosmos, we saw the same sort of half dozen riders like accidentally off the front on yeah. a regular basis, <laughs> right? And in fact, you could very much argue. Well, now we are getting ahead of our of our run sheet here. You could very much argue that the final split at what was it 2030 something like that ish k to go the f- the final group of, of five uh was essentially caused by a crash and it was just the same guys that had been off been on the front the entire day because that's where they needed to be and where they were strongest we'll get to that in a little bit i think well i, I do want to say first that those those riders at the front i mean you with this particular race and the nature of this course it was very hard to be kind of an also ran and still be up there. It was very hard to be just like a third tier contender. And we often see this in, in races. I mean, you see this in Flanders and, and Roubaix all the time, actually, where you might get the, the top favorites make up most of the top five, you know. But there's always, there's a guy, there's a, there's one or two guys, you know, who are there where you're like, oh, nice nice ride today. They'll never do that again, but they had a really good day today. That didn't really happen at Worlds. The, the, the contenders at the end of the race, the, the top riders who were there, were the favorites going in. They were the riders that, you know, in the preview, we gave them many stars out of out of the five stars. 
they are the riders that generally I think people were picking. Maybe not generally the Escape Collective people I asked for picks. Uh, uh, although Kaylee actually picked a, a favorite for once, so I, I appreciate that. There was a commenter who said, uh, "How come the stars and the the picks don't match up?" And you know, hey, I can't make my coworkers pick favorites. Anyway, uh, yes, they were there, and it was definitely clear from pretty far out because of like you guys are saying that they had to be up there. They're just sort of accidentally. Oh, hey, look, I have a gap because I'm I'm always I need to be at the front, and I'm always at the front. Uh, all right, so to kind of get back to what you're saying though. Moments that stood out during the race, maybe that that uh, made the race. Uh, what what stood out to you guys? The early breakaway, I would say, was was one of the big ones. Uh, which, yeah, after watching the junior race, I think everybody knew that mounting a concerted chase on this course was going to be basically impossible. Like a, a team chase was not was not going to happen once you get on the circuits, right? Which means that being up the road by a minute or two was actually a massive advantage and potentially made for an easier day than it would have otherwise, right? Like uh, Matthew Denham, amazing ride, finished in seventh. If he hadn't been in the day's breakaway, he's not finishing in seventh, right? There's absolutely no way. So that, that, that everybody knew this. Everybody wanted to be in that, in that move. Uh, it was a really strong move and it was not given a whole lot of leash. You know, we've seen in the past where at Worlds, some group of riders from smaller nations, maybe they're not actually World Tour riders, they're not they're not particularly concerning to the, the top favorites. They're given like 14 minutes, right, in, in the sort of first 100K of, of Worlds. Uh, nobody was dumb enough to give anybody 14, 14 minutes yesterday. Uh, and you end up with, with, like I said, riders kind of, uh, the whole goal was to get up the road and have the race come to you, hopefully as late as possible. And realistically, the riders in that front group, you know, Kevin Vermarka and, and, and Dinham and, and Owen Duell and all the rest of that, that I mentioned, uh, they're not really working any harder than the people in the Peloton at that point. So it was a, it was a pretty clever thing to, to make their way into a break like that didn't work out really for any of them in terms of like getting on a podium but like i said uh you know Dinam would not have been in seventh if he hadn't have done that cosmo you mentioned i mean honestly we've been talking about this since uh june i guess matthias skelmoza being versatile <laughs> yeah uh this continues again yeah yesterday yeah i mean it uh, kaylee initially put this in the run sheet that you know denmark was all in very very early um they had a lot of riders mostly thanks to uh Jonas uh, Vingigo from the tour, but also, I mean, they, they, are, they are legit. Like, I'm not saying they stacked the field because they got lucky. Like, they are super strong as a cycling nation now. Uh, and they put all that muscle to work very early. And the thing that stood out to me, particularly with Skelmosa, was one of their last guys hanging around uh, at the front of the race, you know, at, <laughs> with, with a scant 70K to go or whatever it was when, there, when things really started breaking down to just a dozen riders. Uh, and it's just incredible to see what the different areas he can excel in. I mean, he's done leadouts. He helped Ciccone get the KOM at the Tour. He was up there, I think, second on the podium for sure at uh, Flesh Wallone. He won Tour de Suisse. And he, here he is in a very classics like like, yeah, there were hills in the course, but it wasn't really a hilly course. And he's out there, you know, throwing elbows, defending space, staying at the front of the race on this, you know, monster crit. It's just, it's just, it's really cool to see that type of versatility from a from a, a single rider. Despite the fact that he didn't uh, finish on the podium, Metz Peterson obviously in in fourth, still yes, a yeah. big contender for the race. And I think between Peterson, Skelmoza, Magnus Court, I mean, they, this the Danes were really strong at this race. They had a really, really, really good team one of the actual top favorites. They weren't like an outsider. It, to me, it was Belgium, Netherlands, and the, and the Danes. Just to see that level of strength at this uh, Worlds on top of the fact that, oh, hey, they just won the last tour, two Tours de France. I mean, it's clearly, it's a moment. It's a moment for the Danes, which is uh, which is cool. It's funny how countries do this, right? That like, you get this sort of super group. I mean, yeah. Slovenia. <laughs> That's a yeah, well, yeah. example. So the most obvious example. Uh yeah, because not only not only do you have Tadej Pogacar, you have Primoz Roglic, you know Mohoric. Like it, it, they have this sort of amazing uh, generation, right? These golden generations, and it feels like we're just tipping into 
the start of a of a Danish golden generation. I mean, Skelmos is, is relatively young. Uh, Jonas is going to win probably a couple more tours. <laughs> let's be honest. So uh, it's just, it's, it's fascinating to me that this happens. That this you get these sort of groups that come up together, and maybe it's just a confidence thing at some point. The only thing I'm going to add to that, Kaylee, is that I while I agree this happens a lot, I think a lot of it might have to do with national funding. I think we saw something in the UK. That started, you know, it didn't start when Chris, when uh, when Brad Wiggins won the tour. It started six years before that, and I think you know different nations kind of get that that initial seed funding to start a serious program, and you know success breeds success. So you end up with people who are five, six years apart, all kind of coming onto the stage at the same time. But yeah, I agree. It's it's cool to see. Yeah, Kelly, the Narvaez crash on our on our run sheet on the on the holy most holy run sheet. This is this is something that we need to talk about because it, as you said, it did make a difference in the race yes so i mean this is a, this is a key key moment and in fact uh nielsen palace mentioned it specifically uh, in his sort of post-race interview as you know i think the group was down to about 2025 at that point if that uh all strung out right like like single file just <laughs> face to the stem hard as they could go and starts to rain and narvaez crashes in a right-hand corner uh just slides out like from the middle of the group basically um probably didn't do anything wrong just hit a bit of paint hit a bit of oil who knows and he crashes out slides into the uh the fencing unfortunately had to abandon i think he he injured himself quite badly um at least badly enough that he didn't feel like continuing in the sufferfest and that split essentially ended up being the split that would define the entire race. And Palace was basically saying, well, actually, I have the quote right here. Yeah, he says, I was really bummed that the crash took me out of the front group. It created the separation with about four laps to go, and that's when Tare Van Der Poel, Van Eric Peterson, and those guys got away. I tried to close it, but the gap to the city was too big, and I couldn't. So just to put this in, in perspective here, this gap is like, less than 50 meters right at this point if that and this course was so hard this circuit was so hard and frankly you, you know you look at the names in that front group there uh there was no way to close it there's no way to close a 50 meter gap at this point in the race and that tells you a lot about the way that this race was playing out and how uh you know on tv it looks like this this thing kind of comes together comes apart goes together comes apart but every single time somebody had to drag that group back together it was just an absolutely enormous effort and at that point in the race four laps to go palace just could not do that and it was the end of the day for him just because narvaez hit the deck basically i think it really was a good illustration of the differences and i I want to talk about this a little bit more later but in this context the differences between like a big stage race and splits at a stage race and classics one day races where we all know the rule of thumb in a stage race. You know, if there's a group up the road and they have uh, a minute, well, you could close that over, you know, 10K. Every 10K is a minute. That That's sort of like the thing that everybody knows from watching enough Eurosport uh, when, you know, when there's an hour left to go. And that's just so different in a one-day race when, first of all, there's really no peloton. It's just like 15 dudes. Um, and then also, if you have... 10 seconds on a course like this, and if you're Matthew Vanderpool and Watt Van Aert and you know, the, the riders that are of that caliber, that's, that could hold for a, the whole rest of the race, and it did. And, and, and so if you get caught behind a Narvaez crash, you know, again, if you're on some intermediate stage in a Grand Tour, you've got a big bunch behind you that might not make a big difference. But on this course, on this day, on this kind of race, it makes all the difference. Uh, and yeah, and then it allows this group to get clear. Then, though, I would say... To me, I mean, I, I texted Cosmo afterward because I, I, I wanted everybody to come to this pod with the, you know, the fiery hot takes. Cause, <laughs> and I, the, one of the reasons that I want that is that I don't even, like, coming out of this race, I don't even know what to say. I mean, it's just Vanderpool just destroyed everybody in the end. Uh, he was perfectly placed throughout the race. I mean, there were obviously a lot of tactical concerns going up to the attack. But then when he made his move, Van Aert couldn't follow. And then it was just like, they, he was gone. He's gone. He was just that much better. Yeah, 100%. He was just that much better. It is worth noting in relation to that crash, in relation to the Nevada's crash, like the reason why those guys are the, are the ones that end up split off the front is because they've been on the front for 75 kilometers, right? 
you mentioned earlier, Cosmo, if you were watching Pogacar the entire race, I don't think he was further back than like 10th, literally in the last 100K, right? If he was, it was for two seconds to go get a bottle or something like that. Uh, like, you make your own luck, right? It's, it's part of what this is. And, and there's a reason why this particular group gets split off by the crash. You know, as as, as sad as it is for for Palace or, or you know, friend of the podcast, Tom Scoinch, like the, the the four off the front were the four off the front because they were also they were the ones pulling the in the rotation they were the ones sitting up there they were the strongest they had the best legs um so they fully deserved it i think that's worth sort of saying saying out loud and then despite that despite the fact that these were unquestionably i think the strongest four riders in the bicycle race we end up with vanderpool making them look like juniors <laughs> up one of these up one of these little climbs right and I shouldn't say little climbs like they're they're quite steep uh but they're not particularly long none of these none of the climbs in the circuit were particularly long and when he went uh i mean he pulled out what 30 meters within within 100 meters like it was it was astounding how much faster he was going than everybody else he he has an ability i think that that's his to me that is the number one thing that he does best is these 20 second efforts where he seems so closely matched with Lafonard in many different ways. And I think Lafonard is probably a slightly better sprinter. Lafonard's probably slightly better. I, I don't think he probably is. I think he is a better time trialist. I think he's a better climber of huge alpine mountains. But one thing that Matthew Vanderpool does better, and probably better than literally anyone on the planet, is these 20-second efforts. Up, yeah, this was like a double-digit grade. It wasn't very long. But within 20 seconds, everybody was, everybody's in the rearview mirror, and it was basically race over from that point. I, I would agree with that, and I want to highlight that is it is very kind of cyclocross-like. You're, you're really – he's making a separation with an effort that no one else can match. And then for the first quarter, third, up until his crash, I think, uh, he was really kind of going the same speed as everyone else. Um, there was – you know, he's got good bike handling skills, kind of. Um, maybe, Kaylee, if you're going to talk about the crash um, in more detail, uh, I was – I was just going to talk about his recovery from it. But, you know, he basically, like, it is that big effort, and then it's sort of matching everybody else and until their spirits are basically broken. And uh, that's what he did today. It's, it's not something every rider can do. I think we saw a lot of Remco Evnepoel, maybe even exposing some weaknesses. Dane, you want some hot takes? Uh, Remco Evnepoel and bike handling. Uh, he was able to routinely open huge gaps on the, like, one straight section of the course, and would repeatedly hand them back to the group, um, you know, over the ensuing corners. And, you know, that doesn't make him bad at bike handling, but it does maybe highlight a vulnerability where one of the three cyclocross, former cyclocross national champions in this winning selection of four uh, could take advantage of him in the classics. I, I do, you know, we like to talk about unheralded riders on the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast. I actually wanted a whole section for overheralded riders, just so I could talk about Remco. So we're going to we, <laughs> we get back to him, because he was very much too many horns, too many heralds. Well, so, so uh, t- can I defend Remco a little bit? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying that. he's bad, I'm just saying. I do, I do think that this is a, a very unique course that is very unlike, frankly, what they ride, what what top World Tour pros ride the entire rest of the year, right? And because of that, like just just from a pure physiological perspective, I think you're going to see riders who just don't have that ability to do the repeated punchy efforts really, really struggle. I mean, I think you could even argue that like Tade Pogaccia, he he's probably the best bike racer in the world. He still, I, I think, kind of struggled today. You could see that whenever there were accelerations, he was the one kind of like, okay, like losing a, a wheel or two, dragging himself back because he just he just can't punch like those guys. I mean, he's he's a he's a Tour de France contender. Like he's he's not he's not designed to to punch it for twenty seconds uh, in the way that that like a Matthew Vanderpool does or anybody else who races cyclocross. To be perfectly honest. Uh, so yeah, I, I do. I, I give Remco some, I don't know, some leeway there because it's just not what he does. And he said that after the after the stage too. I mean, I mean after the stage after the race, uh, you know, he, he was very open and honest. Like, yeah, this this, this course didn't really suit me. Um, he's not as punchy as the rest of the riders. He said that out loud, right? And I do think some of it comes down to handling, but I think a lot of it comes down to 
you just you just have to be able to do you know 1200 watts for 15 seconds like a hundred times and he can't this ties very much into the point i was trying to make with vanderpool where it's like a guy like remco makes the break and then just pins it a threshold and wins the stage a guy like a situation like this which is very cyclocrossy is a guy like vanderpool makes the huge effort and then continues making those little punchy efforts rather than having that just dialed straight at the top of the of the of what he can handle for the remainder of the race that's a great point actually and if you watch him if you if you you know go pull up the replay and watch him in the last um particularly like post crash i think you watch the way that he's riding that course he's riding it like a cyclocross course where he is you know if it's slightly downhill he's kicking over the top and then he's truly recovering right like he's he's basically soft pedaling into the next uphill kick and that's kind of the way that that you have to ride a course like this and it was it was a lot more effective than the chasers behind who were kind of like head down pushing the whole time because every single time they got to one of these kickers he was taking a couple more seconds out of them right and it was a very like you said it was a very cyclocross sort of style of riding in that it was on off on off on off as opposed to the remco just on see listeners we can talk about cyclocross intelligently uh the crash was a big moment Except it wasn't. Like it seemed like it was going to be the defining moment, and then no, he got back on. He was fine. What? What? How? It was amazing. I mean, for me, the big moment was not so much the crash, but how Vanderpool recovered. Like there was zero panic. Like that is the most panic-inducing situation I can imagine. And he was just sort of like picked up his bike. Like the car came in behind him. They're trying to get a new bike off. He kind of waved him off. Got back on the bike. His shoe is obviously broken. He knows it's broken. He's like. I can solve this moving forward. You know, clips in, rides away, comes through the lap, rips off the dangling boa so it doesn't get caught in his drivetrain. You know, there was almost, the time gaps weren't perfect. I think Urban Courses kind of messed that up, but there was almost no change in, in his time gap. And yeah. He definitely extended it as the race went on. And this is a guy who, you know, he. Uh, I actually tweeted right before he crashed. I was like, the only person who can beat Vanderpool now is Vanderpool. And then he crashed and people were like, whoa. And it was sort of like, this happens not regularly, but every so often. And sometimes it completely takes him out of the race. Either he's hurt or just mentally, like you can see him shoulders are slumped. He's unhappy. This was like, oh, I've crashed. Well, how do I mitigate this? It was just very coherent head in the game from someone who can occasionally get a little spacey. And that was for me, like, that was when I knew like, okay, race over. Like there's, (laughs) I can go, you know, make another cup of coffee here because this one's done. Yeah, uh, this was to me the the opposite end of the spectrum from Grisha Nierman on the radio when things happen at Yumbo. <laughs> it's like Yumbo chaos, and then over here, Matthew Vanderpool, cool as a cucumber. I think it's worth noting that adrenaline can often be your friend, and I don't know if you guys caught this. They 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 showed a close up of him trying to like futz with his his shoe, uh, and he he had that sort of ankle bounce. That I don't know if you guys have ever crashed in a bicycle race, but you crash in a bicycle race, like you hit the ground, adrenaline just goes crazy, right? And your feet literally start shaking because of the adrenaline rush. And you could see that you could see this in in the in the in the video, right? It's like you could see this this it's a very particular like ankle bounce that I have experienced many, many times. And it is basically an indication that, you know, your your body is currently flooded, absolutely flooded with adrenaline and i think that that's probably a big part of the reason why he was able to pull out like an additional 20 seconds in basically the next 5k is because he got turned into a superhuman for (laughs) for 15 minutes right i just like i i don't think i've seen that i don't think i've seen that in a pro race maybe i mean obviously we're just not seeing it on on television um but as such like a direct result of like a crash actually being almost beneficial the other time that 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 has happened in uh not in recent memory but if you guys recall the the musette lance armstrong crash uh with ivan maya way back in the day it was 2003 i think um and he like got up caught ivan maya dropped him immediately and actually said afterwards that the adrenaline was helpful that day i i don't mean to bring in lance armstrong into into this podcast is i don't know if that's a, a, a thing we're not allowed to do but that's the only other time I can think of where I've seen sort of like a relatively innocuous crash because right he was fine he slid on the he slid on the wet pavement uh, crashing in the wet is is a lot less damaging generally than crashing in the dry gets up pops up the adrenaline was was almost a boost I think 
Yeah, I could definitely feel that twitch. Like I knew exactly what that felt like when I saw his foot kind of bouncing like that. It was very like, yep, I know that. I also know the feeling of having your boa snap off in the clo- in the closing closing uh, sections of a race. And it's I'm glad that he was able to hang on, but I would really like Boas to not break so easily. Um, I had somebody from Jiro text me and say that he should have been running Empires uh, with our laced <laughs> shoes, and then he would have been fine. I roll with not, Velcro not, sometimes. Not incorrect. No, no problems there. Someday we'll teach you to tie your shoes, Dane. Nah, I don't need that skill. All right. What about moments that maybe pass under the radar uh, a little bit? I mean, the crash I don't, the crash I don't think passed under the radar, uh, but... There were some I think things. The bouncy that, heel might have. The bouncy heel might have. That counts. That yeah. is true. That is right. true. Uh, the only thing I was going to say was that while we saw a lot of really strong teams in the front, we didn't see a ton of the Netherlands up there. And I think a lot of their teamwork may have been making sure that Vanderpool was where he needed to be to not waste energy. Or in situations, we we saw a couple of times Pogachar, probably 90K to 70K to go, tried what he had tried at Flanders, where. He kind of snuck a little peek over his shoulder coming out of a corner and then would attack with Vanderpool and Van Art, you know, seven, eight wheels down, not back back, but enough that if he got clear, they would have a couple of riders to get around to try and respond. Um, I don't think the course was hard enough for that to work, but I think it was still cool to see, I'm assuming anyway, to see Pogacar's mind kind of turning, trying to figure out how he can win on a race that it suited him better than a lot of people, but still didn't really suit him. Like we've talked about, he's, he is not the like smash... 1200 watts rest smash 1200 watts guy what could other teams have done differently i mean is is this a case where there is anything i think to me to me the answer is no uh is there anything that other teams could have done tactically to one to win this race because it really seemed like vanderpool is going to win no matter what i mean here's the answer to your question what teams what team was going to do it? There's no teams in, in the entire last 50 kilometers of, yeah. this, of this race right like there's like t- two dudes from latvia good job uh, well done. Uh, France gone. Um, who else had multiple riders? We had two Americans briefly because we had Kevin Vermarka and we had Nielsen Palace. Uh, but then Vermarka had a, a a flat or a mechanical of some sort. Then we just had Palace. What other what other doubles do and we we got a couple Belgians, a couple Belgians in there. But like really, really, I mean the Belgians are maybe the only ones that's what I'm could thinking. have tried something, and they kind of did. Because we kept seeing Remco do his little like attack on the straight flat bit uh, over and over and over again, but realistically, I mean, they, they had to know that they were riding for for Waffenar, and they were essentially they were they were just hoping that that would come down to a sprint and that Waffenar would win the sprint. I, I think that that's essentially what they were what they were shooting for, and I can't really fault the Belgian tactics. Yeah. I'm sure the Belgian media is faulting the Belgian tactics this morning, uh, but I can't really fault the Belgian tactics <laughs> because what do you do? Like, what, what do you do against Vanderpool on that day? You, you, there's, there's not a whole lot in hindsight that you could that you could really do. Yeah, I, I, tactically speaking, to me, it was more Remco needed to be better. He needed to be stronger, and he wasn't. And when he and with that being the case, what else are they going to do? Because I think the uh, the card to play is Remco attacks from way out. That forces Vanderpool to chase he can't be the one doing it yeah instead that didn't happen and there's no way it could happen because remco just wasn't up to it he wasn't good enough on this course and so here we are i mean i think maybe they could have used stalvin or benoit a little better uh they did a lot of pace setting and not you know if one of them had gotten up the road with betty all then are yeah. like cool everyone else but again like on this course there isn't that like advantage of sitting on the back if the person in front of you punches 1200 watts to get up a little hill you don't get a lot of draft advantage. You know, you're punching 1120 watts to get up the hill. Like it's, it's still pretty brutal course. Um, the only thing I could say is that, that Mats Peterson needs to go do more cyclocross because the, the whole podium was national cyclocross champions, former or present. And I don't know that he's ever raced cyclocross. And I think, you know, we've we talked about how this was kind of a cross effort course and Pedersen, he lost that sprint at the end to, to Pogacar, which is not, you know, the expected outcome. Uh, I also think that Remco should have done the Tour de France, which I've said many times anyway. But the, the top 20 is like all but two or three just came off the Tour, right? Basically, the gap, I think, was just right where you could get the Tour bump, but you could, you'd actually recover in time. I'm interested to see whether we see a similar thing. I would imagine we probably do 
in particular because on the women's side, uh, almost everybody of, of any note has just come off the Tour de France Femme. Um, but the that gap, whether that's sort of the right gap or not, I mean, every time I've ever done a, a stage race or even just like a big, long, single-day race, you, you get you get the sort of bump a little bit after that. And uh, I think that that's what we saw from a lot of the riders in that, in that top 20. And anyway, basically packed, right? Tour packed. Maybe a bit of sort of selection bias there and that the best riders generally end up well, at yeah. the Tour de France and yeah. the best riders are also going to end up at the front of, of the World Championships. But it certainly proves that the tour was not a negative for for those riders, right? And yeah, maybe there's something to it. Maybe there's that sort of like that that post tour bump, the the extra gear. I think was it Vanderpool was talking about. Oh, now I understand the sort of the post Grand Tour extra gear. <laughs> uh, yeah, Remco needed an extra gear. I think is is basically what I'm what I'm saying. And, and Belgium as a as a nation would have really benefited from being able to use him. Uh, in a more effective way, as opposed to just like chucking him up the up the road thirty meters and then waiting for him to get caught in the next corner. Uh, really quickly, because I think it's pretty obvious the big unheralded riders Dinam to me is the is the superstar unheralded rider of the race. The, the fact that he uh, managed to finish where he did and it you know, definitely came down to being in the breakaway, but also he did stay up there. I mean that that's not easy to do. He stayed up there with quite a few impressive names and and ultimately finished seventh in the race uh i was extremely impressed that the 23 year old australian uh our, our uh, matt Denif has a story coming on that front so that's exciting uh and and yeah just chapeau chapeau to matt matt Denham. that was a really 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 great ride i think he's like raced enduro as well he's raced <laughs> everything he's a really interesting guy so yeah keep an eye out for that story from matt the other, the other obvious one here, I think he, he gets some heralding in Escape Collective uh, media for obvious reasons, but he maybe doesn't get enough heralding in general. Uh, a guy coming from a country of how many people live in Latvia? Let's let's check. I want to get this right. Uh, there are. I think it's just him and Chris Nealon's. Yeah, that's it. That's the whole country. Uh, it's it's less than two million people in Latvia, and and Latvia was uh, was a presence in this race. So hats off, Tom Scoinch. It was a, it was a hell of a world's. It was a really good Worlds. I, I want to see... I know production-wise and uh, distribution-wise would be super complicated, but it seemed like there was a really cool battle for that kind of fifth spot, um, and I would have liked to see more of it. We got little bit snippets here and there, but I have no idea how uh, Stefan Kung really came to, to be in that, how that, how yep. that battle went, how they... Because, I mean, that group is gone, right? There's no... like that. You're basically at the front of a separate race. Uh, with a bunch of really tired people who still want a good result. Uh, and I I have, maybe it's just because <laughs> it tends to be where I end up in road races, but I'm always curious about how those things play out at the at the kind of top level. Yeah, I agree. I wish we'd seen some more of that. Uh, all right, overarching takeaways. We close out the elite men's race with some overarching takeaways, and, and I'll kick it off because I think I came away from this race thinking about Vanderpool's season and how incredible his season has been uh this has been uh, it's been a year where generally speaking every time he's won a big race he's been a favorite but not he's not been the odds on clear obvious guy and then he goes and just destroys everybody and it's sort of this thing where you look back on hindsight you say in hindsight you say well how do we not see that coming well it's it's something where i think generally speaking if you look at his uh his flanders wins uh his his two win- he went at uh, San Remo and he won at Roubaix earlier this year. He's come in, again, as a favorite, but there's there's this... To me, it kind of reminds me of Mikhov Kwiatkowski uh, during some of his big wins where, yes, he's obviously among the favorites. He has this very versatile skill set, but he kind of tends to go... Not quiet, but he, he, doesn't, he doesn't always let us know when he's about to, you know, go beast mode. He, does, he doesn't... It's, it's not something that he telegraphs in the races coming up to something. You know, at the Tour de France this year, for instance, we didn't we didn't see Vanderpool doing his own thing. He was largely riding in support of a teammate. So going into this race, he looked good. He was certainly one of the favorites, but it wasn't like everybody knew he was going to blow everybody away. And that's true of when he won Flanders last year. That's true of San Remo and, and Roubaix this year, where I think it was kind of all eyes on Laugh and Art most of the time, all eyes on Belgium. And then he, that's when he goes into his his you know his best. So we talked a little bit about the sort of Wout Van Aert versus Vanderpoel 
what they're like sort of physiologically as athletes earlier. I think one of the other things that's worth mentioning is I think it's becoming increasingly obvious that Wout Van Aert is a lot more resilient than Matthew Vanderpool in terms of like like physical resilient, but like grand tours, that's what they require, right? And one of the things that that you look for in a grand tour contender is you know it's the it's the ability to recover day after day after day after day after day, you know, go into that third week. They often say that the Tour de France is essentially won by whoever gets slower, slower the least, gets the least amount slower. Uh, and I think that one of the things that we're learning, maybe this year is, is the most obvious example of this, is that Matthew Vanderpool is maybe not as resilient in that sort of use of the word. Uh, you know, we saw him last year do the deer, do, try to do the Giro and the Tour tour absolutely sucked right like (laughs) just couldn't do it couldn't couldn't come back um we see this year he takes the tour maybe now we can see purposefully slightly more relaxed than he would have yes he had a bunch of days and breakaways but very little stress on himself very few stages where he was trying to actually win the bike race clearly i think now came in maybe slightly undercooked with the intention of using this as like the world's biggest training camp for the world championships uh and I think that that worked really, that really worked for him, as opposed to Wout Van Aert, who is just a different type of rider. is 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 frankly more versatile. I think because of this resilience, because of his ability to win mountain stages in the third week of the Tour de France, things like that. These two riders that that have come up together, come up next to each other. I mean, everyone keeps posting that bit, that that photo from was it twenty eleven or twenty twelve or whatever it was when they're juniors sitting next to each other after a cyclocross worlds. They've come up next to each other, and we kind of assume that because they go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth that they're actually very similar. But I think they're more different than we than we think, and I think that resilience is one of the bigger differences between them. It's one of the, the reason why Wout van Aert has found more success in Grand Tours and the reason why Matthew van der Poel has, in general, found more success in these one days. I think that that's a big part of the 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 puzzle there. And certainly in the one days that are the, the biggest, because we've seen van Aert, I think crush some one-day races he just hasn't quite done what Vanderpool has done on the very biggest stage I mean already even before Worlds it was Vanderpool four monuments to Van Hart's one now Vanderpool's won a world title and it just seems like there there is I think I think Van Hart needs to win a, a big race again soon to I mean, maybe help nip this conversation in the bud about you know, can he win the big one again? Because it does seem like Vanderpool has a strong advantage there when the the stage is the biggest, uh, and and that's what we've seen in the past few years. That said, there's still, I mean, Vanderpool's 28. Like, it's not like this is a, and he has already won Milan Sanremo, so this this is not necessarily going to define his career. Uh, but I think he does need to win win some big stuff next year. He ne- he needs to go out, come out swinging because this year I think the conversation was generally about how great Jumbo Visma was right up until they weren't in the very biggest races. I think that I think that Wavanart would come back and say, "Well, Matthew Vanderpool hasn't, you know, gone for green jersey yeah, and sure. won this giant pile of Tour de France yeah. stages no, and other no things no like Alta like, win." Yeah, like exactly like the, the the kind of stuff that the kind of stuff that I don't think you can do. And again, this resilience thing is is maybe why this is this is my little my little pet theory is that he's just he's just not as good a Grand Tour rider, or maybe he doesn't care as much about, about, about Grand Tours. It's kind of hard to parse the difference there. But my guess is that this is a physiological thing. He just doesn't maybe just doesn't recover as well into those sort of second and third weeks as Wout van Aert does, who is not only this exceptional one day racer, but also has this wild ability to get through a Grand Tour and and continue to smash people in the face well into the third week despite the fact that he's relatively enormous <laughs> compared to everybody else yeah. uh, around him in, in a lot of these stages i have two more quick takeaways the first he's not an unheralded rider maybe a, a performance that deserves more heralding tata pogaccio is really good at bike racing i mean he's just finished third at worlds he has won a boatload of big one-day races he's a two-time twitter france winner and yeah he and we already discussed this, but he beat Matt, Matt Peterson in a sprint in a big one-day race. He's amazing. He he really is. I, I think what you said earlier is is spot on. I think he's the best racer in the world. I don't think it's that close even. Uh, it, it's it's a level of dominance. It's a level of versatility that a few years ago, people kind of talk about, man, Peter Sagan is so versatile. 
And it's like, yeah, he, he was, but did he ever win two Tours de France? I mean, th this guy is, is next level, and it's it's pretty cool that we get to watch it. Uh, yeah, 100% agreed. I mean, who else do you even put anywhere near him, right? Like, just, just picture for a moment. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Picture Jonas Vingago in the front group of that. Yeah. Of that. <laughs> world championship in like last 30k it's impossible <laughs> you can't no, his cda is so good he would just he would just get into his arrow position and he would coast back on after every climb yeah it reminds me of the Froome model that's where his next like step he crushed everybody in the tour de france I and mean, Froome was way better but in a one-day race it was like not yeah. he his best efforts ever in one-day races were like he Matt Matt Denham has already finished better in a one day race than Froome like ever did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I no no question around that. That is the best bike race in the world. Uh, I think even Matthew Vanderpool wearing rainbow stripes would probably say the same thing. So best road bike know, racer. Uh, we we may see in a few days how Matthew Vanderpool uh, more broadly in the bike racing world uh, maybe deserves. Very true. A bit more credit. Best male road racer. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. We, should, we should narrow it down. Because a lot of Kopecky is probably going to win uh, the World Championships next weekend and, like, almost won the damn Tour de France yeah. <laughs> a yep. week ago. So, yes. Uh, yes. My last takeaway was just, in general, that the, the, the excitement from Worlds, I think, really nice uh, way to hopefully build on what, again, I hope, the, the Tour de France and the Unchained, kind of, un Unchained and then the 2023 Tour de France back-to-back potential for bringing on new fans. I think this could have been an, another good step because it was such a great world and worlds is usually, obviously it's not in August. So the fact that we got a highly entertaining Netflix doc series, a great tour de France, just a really, really good tour de France battle. And then this all in a pretty short span of time. I'm hoping it helps bring some new fans into the sport. I'm, I'm hoping the people who started watching the Netflix show, who then got entertained by a really good 2023 tour, and then maybe they tuned in to this race. I'm hoping that they come out of this thinking, man, what a really entertaining two months of sports, and maybe I should watch bike racing now. Except watching this in the U.S. was annoying. Yep, just about to say there are a number of... <sighs> broadcasters who will ruin this for anyone interested in it because that's what they do <laughs> they're happy <laughs> performing to 70 year olds sitting on the couch every morning in july and they don't care about anything else uh it's kind of sad uh my my last takeaway is back to the course which was that it was sweet and uh we should do more bike races like this because the crit world championships was awesome and Crit racing is turns out crit racing is really cool. And if you stick the actual best bike races in the world, as opposed to like, no offense to the sort of American crit scene, but uh, you know, you versus Matthew Vanderpool, probably I bet he wins. Uh, if you take the sort of the, the top athletes in the sport and you apply them to a course that frankly isn't seen all that often at that level, it makes for some pretty amazing bike racing. And I think that course designers should, should keep that in mind. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and I enjoyed the fact that some certain type of of person, mostly former retired bike racers, hated it, and I, I appreciated both <laughs> of those things. I just loved it, and in particular, given all the sort of, yeah, the, the hand-wringing, hemming and hawing about the, the course beforehand, I thought it was an absolute success, and I absolutely cannot wait for the Elite Women's Race uh, this weekend because it's going to be just as good. It's going to be just as chaotic. I think we probably already probably know who's going to win. I think, but there's going to be lots of different riders that can try. Just yeah, bold courses. Make a bold choice, even if it stinks. Like, shake things up. It'll be interesting to watch, unless you make a bad bold choice and it's not interesting. But I <laughs> yeah, like I said, if recently retired pros complain, it's probably the right thing to do. Like, like if you go all the way back to like Richmond, for example, the Richmond World's Course, right, where it had it was not sort of the same kind of like city circuit as as, this, as these circuits were, but it had essentially like one little punchy climb in it with cobbles. Actually, that was a great race. Yeah, Pierce Sagan won that race. Uh, yeah, do something a bit different, and and I think that the the big takeaway from this course and the way that it's been raced, both in the elite men's race and the junior races, 
is that you don't have to have, you know, the four minute climb to have a course suit punchy, exciting riders. Right. That tends to be the standard, right? Which is, you know, the 90 second to, to four minute kind of VO2 test climb to separate things out. You can literally have a series of 200 meter long 15% grades and that will do it. And I want to see more of this because yeah, it was one of the best, one of the best road races, one of the best world's road races I have seen in years. Totally. All right. That's elite men's road race at world. There's plenty of world's action to come. Some quick hits before we closed it out. Uh, we're not going to have a big conversation about the tour of Poland. I, I it, but this is the pretty serious bike racing podcast. I'm serious enough that I want to at least mention that Mate Mohoric won a, a stage race. With like some pretty steep climbs in it, and good on Mate Mohoric for that. Uh, he went out and beat some guys who can climb to to take this this GC win. So I was very very impressed with Mate Mohoric for his efforts at the Tour of Poland over guys like Joao Almeida, Rafael Mica, people who are you know, well they they climb. That's what they do, and and that's not what I tend to think of him doing. I tend to think of him going on big solo attacks on you know hilly but not super mountainous days. Uh, I tend to think of him going downhill quickly. Uh, but yeah, good on Matej Mohoric for that. At the Tour of Poland. Good on the Tour of Poland for making it through another year without any awful crashes. Uh, we've got some big races coming up, as we've said, across the spectrum of disciplines. On the road side, the time trials are the next, the next target. The individual time trial world championships where... On the women's side, the women's one's coming up on August 10th. That's the first one. We will see Marlon Rooser and possibly Chloe Digert going at it. Uh, Digert's already done some big things at Worlds and another opportunity here. We'll see. I was just going to say, I remember watching the two of them chatting at the back of a very small group at the end of a couple Volta Feminina stages, and I can only imagine they were talking shit about what was going to happen at Time Trail Worlds. Pre-TT so. trash talk? Yeah, I, I mean... <laughs> Marlon Royster talks a lot during races uh, in ways that are slightly intimidating, I think. So at least that's what the ambient mic catches. I would imagine she may be trying to get in Digard's head. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> men's race the following day. Maybe we'll see a Remco Watfan Art uh, competition there. And then the women's road race on Sunday where Kaylee... It seems like you feel pretty strongly that Lada Kopecky is the race favorite. <laughs> I think I think firmly, firmly the race favorite. Uh, I who would beat her? Who would who would beat her? Yeah, I mean nobody really comes to mind as a strong, obvious favorite. I mean it it could play out it could play out entirely different from the men's race that That's has true. happened before. Yeah, but I think if you are anybody but Weebus, you're gonna make sure that she's not there at the end, right? And I think that the course is hard enough to, to make that happen. Kopecky, yeah. how many teammates is Kopecky going to have, though? Like, we, we said this wasn't a team chase course, but I think, you know, Weebus and the entirety of the of the Netherlands is is a lot of a lot of factors uh, in her favor. I mean, the way that Kopecky doesn't win this is if, yeah, if a group splits off and she just happens to not be in it, and then there's no way to chase it. Yeah, like a Chloe Diger attacking from 100k out, that sort of thing. Yeah, but I don't, I don't think that's Weebus that beats her. It'll be like some second tier Dutch person <laughs> or something like that who just like slips into something. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. she's my pick. She's my pick. I am notoriously wrong about these things. Uh, although I did win. Kaylee, the, you crushed it, the, es- the escape, escape collective fantasy yes, you tour did, de France. So. You're better than you think, I think. Yeah. Uh, it was the first time. we Well, we have an app now. And it was the first time that I, so I was at the bicycle race. It was the first time I didn't have to, like, open my laptop and open the browser and, like, f- log into the thing. It just, like, you know, push notification. You need to pick. And I remember to pick. Because generally, actually remember to pick is my is my. Yeah, that also, <laughs> yeah, that got me a couple of times, not remembering to pick. Yep. In any case, yep. uh, that's what we got coming up. There will be plenty more to talk about on the placeholders, uh, so stay tuned for that. And we're gonna play games. We're gonna play games. 
Yeah, placeholders just because because we have this podcast now to be pretty serious. Placeholders are just going to get weirder and weirder. I can't wait. That's the sounds, <laughs> sounds awesome to so, be editing that, Dan. Yeah, that's going <laughs> to be fun. like a great job. Yeah. Uh, all right, we'll look forward to that, and we might even have a year in trouble. You never know. Ooh. Ugh. Okay. Yeah. Great. Uh, all right. Lots to look forward to this week. So much to look forward to. Once again, before we go, I'll remind you. Head on over to escapecollective.com slash join. Sign up to become a member. Support all the fun things we do. Well, the very serious things that we do specifically here on this show. And the fun things that maybe the placeholders are up to. And the Geek Warning crew. And the Wheel Talk crew as well. All right. Kaylee, Cosmo, thanks for the conversation. We will see you guys, well, when we see you. Thanks, Dane. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Dane. Thanks, Dane.